but I thought Terrence Hardy now. Ah, it's not so bad here. It's Dave Melton again, an assistant editor here at Second City Hockey, welcoming you in to another Friday show here on the Second City Hockey Podcast Network. We got a real good one for you guys today. Uh, you know, not that the other ones weren't great, of course, but it's actually hockey season now. I know. They're having practices, they're playing games, everything like that. The games don't count yet, but they're still playing them. So, so we got hockey to talk about. And so, in light of that, we've got one of the veterans of the Blackhawks beat joining us on the show today. It's uh, Mark Lazarus from The Athletic. He's been covering the team since the start of the 2013 season when they ran to the Cup. That was a great, su- great summer, fall, spring, spring and summer. That was a great spring and summer, wasn't it? So, of course, we talked about hockey because, you know, it is hockey season again. We did touch on a few other topics as well, the including the first team that he covered fresh out of college, which was another NHL team. Briefly talked about his time covering high school sports. Uh, and, of course, we got into some Pearl Jam stuff because if you follow him on Twitter, you know he likes Pearl Jam. And we even touched on Manti Teo for reasons that, well, you're just going to have to listen and find out for yourself. With the season just around the corner, head over to Second City Hockey. We've got a ton of content coming for you this week, next week, the week after that. Previews, player breakdowns, there's a whole bunch of stuff coming. Just keep an eye out for it. We'll get you ready with everything you need for the upcoming Blackhawk season. And be sure to head over to The Athletic too. read the stuff that Mark Lazarus and Scott Powers are putting out because it's always great content. Between all of that, hopefully we'll keep you... uh, Get you ready for Blackhawk season and everything that's going to happen over the next five to six months. One more thing to talk about before I bring you into this conversation we just had. We've got a really, really special guest coming up next week on this show. Well, excuse me, it'll be in two weeks. But I'm not going to get into too many details, but let's just say he got a really, really fancy piece of jewelry after the summer of 2010. So I can't wait to share all of that with you guys. But in the meantime, many thanks to Mark for taking the time out of what's probably a really busy schedule now and uh, to join the show and talk about the Blackhawks. And here is the conversation with Mark Lazarus of the FL. Mark Lazarus from The Athletic is here. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I know that after two or three months of probably almost boredom for you, it's much busier all of a sudden. Two or three months. I think it was five months between the, uh, the last game and the start of the regular the preseason here. Uh, yeah, it's been a long summer. There's been a lot to write about, don't get me wrong. But it's nice to actually see people on ice again and talk to human beings and not just speculate and, you know, hypothesize. Yeah, I know since you've been writing for The Athletic, you've been covering a little bit of everything, but hockey was always like your number one sport, right? Yeah, you know, just like my, the Blackhawks are still my base of operations. When I have nothing else to write, I go to the Blackhawks practice or the Blackhawks game. I still spend most of my time on the beat, and I still travel a fair bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, hockey, since I was a little kid, hockey's always been my number one sport. Okay, hockey, okay. college football. Yeah, right, right. So how is Northwestern doing this year? I haven't watched a single game yet. We're really bad. <laughs> uh, so, so the Fitzgerald hype's finally starting to die out. Well, it's the normal Pat Fitzgerald thing where they're really bad in September and October, and then they'll probably be really good in November. Because okay. I guess an entire off season is not enough time to prepare for you know Stanford. I don't know. No, well, you know, I got you. Know, Stanford is pretty good. We'll find out. I guess we'll find out how good they are when they play. In it November. was better. It was better last week against UNLV. There's, there's some hope now. Okay. Okay. 
we are going to get to the Blackhawks a little bit, obviously, because that's the main reason we wanted to talk to you with as much you've been covering them for several years now. Um, but I wanted to go back to the very beginning because I believe right out of college, you covered the Pittsburgh Penguins, correct? I did for a suburban paper in, uh, in Western Pennsylvania called The Observer Reporter. I was, I was kind of like what the Daily Herald is now, where I covered home games and home practices. Didn't travel much, though. Okay. Um, I covered the three years where the Penguins were bad enough to draft Fleury, Malkin, and Crosby and then left. <laughs> so what, what was it like just to go from right out of college uh, at Northwestern, the, the aforementioned Northwestern, to go straight from there to covering, you know, hockey at its highest level? It was, well, I wouldn't say it was the highest level. It was <laughs> That's awesome. right. Um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was great. I mean, I was very fortunate. Uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of sports writers coming out of college, they kind of have two options. They could either be a big fish in a small pond or get like a small job at a big paper. And I think the smarter path is probably get a small, uh, a small job at a big paper, you know, a, a prep job or a copy editing job to try to work your way up by impressing the bosses. But uh, I was so excited to be covering the NHL right out of school. Uh, I jumped at the chance. After you covered the Penguins, I believe that's when you came to the Chicagoland area. You're writing for the Post Tribune here in Northwest Indiana. And then, you got to cover Notre Dame, and this is something I've always wanted to ask somebody about because I grew up as a huge Notre Dame football fan, and I remember you were on the beat when this happened. What was it like to be there in the middle of the Manti Teo scenario? Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's funny because that didn't really happen until after the season. Like, right. Uh, the, the, the Deadspin story came out like four days after – the uh, BCS championship game, I believe. Because I remember I was the, the lockout had just ended. The Blackhawks had a four-day training camp, and there was no preseason game, so they had a scrimmage at the United Center on a Wednesday night. And I remember I missed that scrimmage. I was in the press room at the United Center listening to Jack Sporbrick's press conference in the Manti Teo stuff. And that same week, Brian Kelly was being interviewed by the Eagles, I think it was, and, like, all hell was breaking loose. And I kind of called my boss, and I'm like, I can't be doing this anymore. I have another I have to cover the Blackhawks now. So I kind of weaseled my way out of having to cover the Manti Teo fallout. I wrote the initial story recapping that long and circuitous Deadspin dead story. Then I kind of snuck out the back door and Mark Potash had to cover the rest of it. Oh, wow. That, that's probably the good timing to get out away from that one. That, oh, was, my God. I, my, my timing has been amazing on this job. I mean, when I, when, when I covered Notre Dame, it was supposed to be – I was still at the Post-Tribune. I was still the sports editor of the Post-Tribune. And I was supposed to just kind of cover the games. I was still doing my sports editor duties. I was still covering high school sports, high school football. But then, and, and, and the Sun-Times never really gave that much coverage to Notre Dame. I was supposed to write a couple of 300-word stories a week. But then they blew up. They went 12-0, and 0 and they were anti tail for the Heisman, and they played for the national championship. So I was getting, like, two-page spreads and writing big stuff every day. And it wound up being, like, an, an audition, basically, for the Sun-Times. So... You grew up loving Notre Dame. I grew up hating Notre Dame with like the passion of a thousand sons. Understandable. And I, I I basically owe my entire career to Notre Dame being good at football one year. Yeah, and the one time they've been good, well, I guess they've had a couple good seasons since then. Most then, of them. Just go because then the lockout ends the day before the BCS championship game, so I'm in Miami, so I don't or Fort Lauderdale, so I didn't have to cover all of that shit storm. Adam Johns had to do that because I was busy. <laughs> And then I go right into the 21-0-3 season with a, with a Stanley Cup. I mean, my timing that all year took me 12 years to become an overnight success. Yeah. Did you go to Vegas at some point, try and cash in on all this luck you were having? I should have done that if I was smart, but I am not. I'm a sports writer. 
All right, so I, I think we've got enough of the preamble out of the way now. I guess now we can get to the main course here and talking about the Yeah, Chicago nobody cares Blackhawks. about me. Yeah, no, well, you know, I, I care about Notre Dame football, and I just, for some reason, I reread that entire Manti Teo story within the last week, and then it dawned on me, oh, I know a guy I could ask about that. I feel anyway. like I should point this out to your listeners. Uh, Dave was one of my writers at the Post Tribune. I was. And he was one of the correspondents I could actually rely on to produce coherent, legible copy that actually made sense. I very much appreciate it for that. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I, I I was hoping we were going to get through the whole podcast. Hopefully, we won't have to talk about any of the uh, any of your horror stories of covering prep sports in high school in the, uh, <laughs> Northwest Indiana that I still have sometimes. Oh, boy, yeah. I'm sure I got a few of those. You mentioned before that the most hateful things that you've ever received or I guess the most uh, vitriol you've ever gotten from readers was when you were writing about high school kids, not about pro athletes. Oh, God, the, the anti-Semitic nonsense I got on Twitter now is nothing compared to an angry high school sports parent. Yeah, hell, hell hath no fury, like a high school parent scorned or something like that. And they call you and they tell you their name and they give you your phone number, so it's like it's much more real and visceral. <laughs> oh, good times, good times. Blackhawk stuff. So um, you wrote a big column earlier this week that I think – some people might agree with, but I think a lot of people may have reasons to doubt. Well, I guess it was last week, but it was all about your reasons why you're optimistic about this Blackhawks team. I encourage everyone to, of course, go to The Athletic and read this story. But um, if you could give like a brief summary of what the things that have made you actually be optimistic about this team. Well, it's weird. You know, uh, all the, you know, you look at like the Dom Luce of the world and the, and the analytics people, and they look at the Blackhawks, and they see another 85, 88-point non-playoff team. And I don't know. I have I, – look, I know the Central Division is going to be a meat grinder this year. Everybody except for the Wilds is going to be good this year. I get that. Some good team is going to get left out. But I look at these Blackhawks, and, you know, they played the second half of the year, I think it was a 97-point pace last year. Uh, that's a pretty decent sample size, 40-something games. And, yeah, there's some PDO involved there. But they also had horrible goaltending during that stretch. And they still managed to do that. So I think the biggest thing is that bringing in Robin Leonard – I mean, that's 25, 30, potentially 40 games where you go from a 900 save percentage guy in a Cam Ward or a uh, Colin Delia to a guy who put up a 930 last year. And granted, he's not going to do that. This isn't the Barry Trotz defense in front of him. But if he puts up a 915, 920 even, that's, that's probably 10 more points in the standings for the Blackhawks. So I think that can't be stressed enough. Um, and you know what? The defense was bad last year. It's better now. Calvin DeHaan is a good top four defenseman. The Nicholas Chalmerson type that they've been lacking for a couple of years. Uh, Ole Mata is nothing spectacular, but he's better than what they had. He can kill penalties. Ryan Carpenter, not exciting move. I understand that, but another guy that can kill penalties, take pressure off of Jonathan Taves. I, we saw on uh, Tuesday night what Dominic Kubelik can do. He might not be an Artemi Panarin-level signing, but he's certainly more than you know a David Camp bringing over from Europe. He's a very good player who might be able to slot right in with Taves and Kane in that top line and be very productive. There's reasons to think that this can be a good team. They've got a lot of offense. If they can just be a middling defense, a mediocre defense, I see no reason why they shouldn't be a playoff team. And so far out of the first week or, well, I guess, week and a half of camp that the Blackhawks have had, have you seen anything that's kind of – anything that's either changed your mind or just made you more firm in that belief for, for optimism? Not really. I mean, I'm not one of those guys. Like, maybe, it, maybe it's a it's a mark against my skills as a, as a, as a writer, but, man, I can't sit there and look at guys doing drills at that at, at, at Rocky's Ice House and be like, ooh, he looks good pivoting on his left foot today. Like, <laughs> I, I don't see the game at that micro level. I'm not proficient enough to do that. 
there's got you know every, everyone looks good in preseason. Everyone's fresh. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's moving faster than they do in March. So I, I try not to put too much stock in the preseason and in training camp. But you know, I look. I just look at the at the roster as a whole and the individual talent they have. They're going to have a fantastic top six, a very good top nine, and they're going to have a really good you know top three or four defense. It's going to be a pretty good team, I think. Not a contender, not a contender, but a pretty good team. Okay. I mean, my biggest concern with this team at the end of the last season, and it still is kind of there right now, is the penalty kill because it was historically terrible last year, and the players oh, yeah. that they added like. Ryan Carpenter's numbers were like some of among the bottom on the Vegas penalty kill were somewhere in the middle of the league. So you got one of the lower performing guys from a middle of the road penalty kill. And I guess the Han and Mata should help the Blackhawks penalty kill. But I mean, is that, is that still something you see as a major concern? Cause I'm still terrified. They're going to give up seven of 10 or only kill seven of 10 penalty kills again. And we're going to have an issue with that all season long. Oh, no doubt. It's a concern. And yeah, Ryan Carpenter, the sad thing is, being the worst guy in the middling penalty kill upgrades for the Blackhawks penalty kill. Yeah. Anyway, you slice it. The guy can at least win a faceoff and chuck it down the ice, which is more than the Blackhawks could do last year. If, if, you want, if the Blackhawks really wanted to, they can, if they have to, they will. They could put Taves and Sod out there on the PK and do a pretty good, decent job of it. But the problem is that comes at the expense of other facets of the game. Taves gets worn down. He can't be the offensive force he was last year. They really need somebody to step up, whether it's David Camp, whether it's Ryan Carpenter, any, any of these guys. Andrew Shaw could potentially do it. I know it's not really in his repertoire, but he, he has the, the, the tools to be an effective penalty killer if he wants to be. Someone has to step up. It can't just be Taves and Saad doing all the heavy lifting because they weren't great at it last year either, and it right. comes at the expense of more important five-on-five minutes for them. Yeah, and, and Taves' yeah, numbers were really definitely a concern. Right, right. And Kasev's numbers, especially on the penalty kill, were getting concerned last year because I, I was looking his, at, at Corsica, his, his shots against rate, his chances against rates, were, they were some of the worst in the league. And I didn't – like, you yeah. wouldn't expect that out of Jonathan Taves. No, but if he's also out there with three other guys. It's fair. And, 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 I, and, and, and you know me, I'm not – I have pro-analytics all the way, and I use them all the time. But you have to take everything in hockey. I was talking to – I can't say who because he works in the front office of a uh, – of a team, and he's actually the analytics guy for the team. Inside uh, sources. Not the Blackhawks. <laughs> and, and we were talking just idly about it at the draft, and he's like, yeah, he's like, even those of us, this is our job, you know, none of us really knows exactly yet what these numbers mean. It's only been a few years that we've really had really good numbers, and the dynamic nature of the sport. This isn't baseball. It's not one-on-one. It's not pitcher versus batter. There's too many other factors involved. We haven't perfected these stats yet. So, those numbers tell part of the story. They don't tell the whole story. And, uh, I mean, we all, we all have seen Jonathan Taves' larger body of work. He's a good penalty killer. But last year, he wasn't the defensive force. He, was, he, was, he has been in the past. And part of that was he was playing with Patrick Kane instead of Marion Hossa, which are two very different players. Right. Um, and it depends on what you want out of these guys. Do you want Jonathan Taves to be a point-to-game guy? Is he more valuable to you that way? Or is he more valuable as a 60-point guy who shuts down the opponent, opposing team's top line? Ideally, someone else can do that, like a Marcus Kruger type line from the from you know the days of yore, and right. Taves can do you know be more of an offensive threat. But these are the things Jeremy Collins has to work out this preseason and early on in the season is who fits where and where are guys the most valuable. 
and you mentioned the the Blackhawks seems like they could have a really good top nine this year. They've got a lot of four talent at the top of the lineup. I think one of the most interesting training camp battles to watch this uh, this fall is going to be at the bottom of the four depth chart because it seems like there's like 15 guys there who could end up winning a position. Yep. Is there anything you've seen out of guys so far or just from the, the, the months leading up to training camp, guys that you think might emerge out of that huge slog of players? What's really going to complicate things is if Alex Nylander makes the team. Or if Alexi Sorella makes it, I don't think he's going to, but if he, if he did, if one of those skilled guys makes the team, then how do you fill out, excuse me, that fourth line? Right. Because there's so many guys that fit that fourth line mold that, you know, Carpenter and, you know, John Quenville can do that, uh, Matthew Highmore, Brandon Hagel. There's a lot of guys out there that can fill that role. But if you add a, another skilled guy, Alex Nealander can't be playing on your fourth line. That would be stupid. He's got to be in your top nine. So if he makes the team, he would look really good in that preseason opener, obviously. So there's, there's a chance that happens. Then that further complicates things. You drop an Andrew Shaw down to a fourth-line role, even though he's coming off a 60-something point season. Uh, Brandon, can Brendan Perlini play a fourth-line role when he's more of an offensive-minded guy? That's going to complicate things the most. Because like you said, there are. They've got a ton of fourth-line guys. But they don't have a fourth-line yet. So it's going to be really interesting to see if David Camp is capable of being a third-line center, can he, is he good enough to be a scoring center with Artem Anisimov out of the picture? Who can slide into that role? Does Andrew Shaw, I'm writing about this this week, is there any center life left in Andrew Shaw? He was a winger most of his time in Montreal. He's not getting the legs he used to have, but he was a very effective center at times for the Blackhawks. How are they going to make this work? That's really the only question at this point is that fourth line. How is it going to look coming out of camp? Because the defense is set. Nobody's cracking that. It looks like Calvin DeHaan will be ready for opening night, so that's pretty well set. It's that fourth line, that bottom six, really. We don't know how that's going to shake out. And, and Christopher Steve's going to make this team, isn't he? <laughs> He's not going to make the team, but <laughs> okay. I'm telling you, if there's injuries, at some point they can buy that contract and make it an NHL deal. He looks – he's only 33 yet. He's, he looks fast again. I got to get me some stem I got to get some stem cells. I remember reading a story. I don't know if it was you or Powers that wrote about him in the, in the offseason that he just – he had all these – he was relying on his athleticism playing in, in all these other leagues because he could get away with it because his body wasn't working as well. Now his body's back to where it was, you know, five years ago when he was a very productive NHL player. So now he feels like he can be that guy again, not just relying on his ability. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things are going to have to go wrong for it to come to him. Right. But if he's tearing up the AHL, I mean, they would be yeah. foolish not to give him a try. Yeah. But I just as soon as as soon as I saw he signed with Rockford, I think every Blackhawks fan that that is knows what's going on with Versteeg. It's like he's gonna be there at some point. It just it's just the way Chris Versteeg is. It's funny he's so polarizing too. Like when I, I tweeted that out the other, day, I said at some point this season, Chris Versteeg's gonna be playing in the NHL. I got like fifty percent of the replies were like, "Hooray!" and fifty percent were like, "Oh God, no!" Well, they need him if they play another outdoor game, which they will, I'm sure, next year. They're probably due for another one. And because Versteeg was always money to score in an outdoor game. That's true. That's true. So one guy, another Ford I want to ask you specifically about, and you talked about him a little bit, was Alex Nylander. Because we, you know, obviously there's a ton of knocks against him from his time in Buffalo. There was so many things that, uh, there, and after he got traded away, all this news came out about all the things that were, all the things that he wasn't doing mainly, I think is a lot of the stereotypical things you get about young players, about them not maybe not back-checking quite hard enough, not be, being a little lackadaisical. Just all, all the usual things you hear about players that were high draft picks that weren't panning out. And I think some people, I was one of them, we saw him at prospect camp, and 
some of those looked like there was legitimate reason to have those concerns. But again, it was a prospect camp in the middle of the summer, so I don't know how much stock we can put in it. Where do you sit with Nylander? Are you, do you have these concerns as well, or do you think that was just kind of something to not make such a big deal about? No, I, I certainly have those concerns. I, I have a lot of friends in Buffalo who have been covering him for years, so they've seen a lot more of him than I have. I saw prospect camp, and I've seen a few days of training camp, and everyone said the same thing. Look, he has all the talent in the world. Like, there is a superstar waiting to happen just with his ability. It's just between the years with him. I, again, I haven't seen enough of him to say that. I haven't seen what happens if things are going wrong, if he's in a slump, if things aren't going his way, if he's not in the spot in the lineup he wants to be in. So it's hard for me to pass judgment on a guy based off the early days of a training camp. Uh, he certainly looks really skilled. There's no doubt about that. There's a lot of guys like that. I, I always come back to Brandon Peary. And Brandon Peary okay. has matured and come a long way. Uh, every, every time I talk to him, I'm more impressed with that how mature he's gotten, but I never, when he was a snot-nosed kid early on, like the 2013-14 preseason, I think it was that year, he was he was hurt, he was missing preseason games, and he hadn't done anything to establish himself over the first three years of his time with the Hawks, and uh, I asked him, like, are you concerned that you know, you're missing a chance to prove to prove yourself to Joel Quinville and the coaching staff? He goes, nah, they know what I can do, and it was just <laughs> the cockiest thing any 21-year-old has ever said to me. Because here's a guy who had all this talent but never wanted to play defense and wasn't even worried that he was missing training camp time. It didn't mean anything to him. And I was like, that's the wrong attitude to have with a Joel Quenville-type coach. And sure enough, it didn't work out. So I don't know. I don't know if Alex Nylander is that kind of guy, but I've seen a million guys like that who are very, very skilled and talented but don't necessarily put in the effort or they're not consistent or they sulk when things are going bad. I don't know for sure. I, don't, I can't tell you firsthand that Alex Nylander is one of those guys, but that's the vibe I get from everyone I talk to in Buffalo. Now, granted, everyone who covers the Sabres gets embittered very quickly because things go bad very quickly there. Right, but right. It, all I have is their account. If their account is that this guy's a head case. We'll see. I mean, the change of scenery works for a lot of guys. Look at the Dylan Strong trade. Nobody said he was a head case. They just said he wasn't ready. And you put him with talented players, and he blew up and had this great year. Maybe Alex Nealand is the same thing. That's what Stan Bowman's certainly hoping for. Uh, I still wouldn't have traded Henry Yokiharu for just about anybody short of a superstar, but maybe Nealander puts it all together here and shows why he was in the first-round pick in the first place. It's a little terrifying, though, that when we talked about Nealander, the first player you mentioned was Brandon Peary. It's a little scary. <laughs> the, the way he was described to me by Buffalo people, reminded me of a young Brandon Peary. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I am not equating him to that yet because it's, 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 it's not fair for me to pass judgment on a guy this early in his career. Okay, we will. <laughs> that's, that's your job, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. right. We're, we're more of the fan perspective. We're allowed to make snap judgments for no reason at all. On, on defense, you talked about the, 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 that group pretty much being set already, it seems like, especially in the very pleasant surprise that Calvin DeHaan might actually break camp with the team and be able to play. He's not going to be like a Connor Murphy situation last year. So, like you've said, it seems like the defense is going to be better, but I guess it's – It can't be worse, right? I mean, how could it get worse? That seems like that's the the case with the defense, is as long as it's not worse, which it would be really – really almost impressive if they could be worse than they were last year. So, is that (laughs) – because you you were talking about, like, the – the goaltenders last year, like Colin Dealey had sometimes had, you know, a, a safe percentage under 900, but sometimes it felt like that was more of a reflection on the defense than the goalies in front of them. So 
do you see why? No, no so so it seems like there's going to be less, you know, wide open players sitting in the in the crease this year tapping in easy goals. Well, we'll find out. I mean, that's yeah, that's got to happen. I mean, college system, it's not always about clearing guys out of the crease. So a lot of it is they want the goalie to see the puck. They don't want the goalie to have four guys in front of them. So there's 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 a lot of there's some nuance to that. But okay. uh, you're right. I mean, there were there were some nights where Cam Ward was just fantastic last year and gave up five goals. So yes, mm-hmm. it's only fair to acknowledge that the save percentage were affected by the horrible defense played in front of them, and that Robin Leonard's 9:30 last year was probably inflated a bit by playing behind a Barry Trotz defense, the best defense in the league. That had, we saw last year, the Islanders went from the worst defense in the league to the best defense in the league. It can happen. Proper coaching and putting in a system that works can dramatically change the way a defense plays. We'll see if Jeremy Collins can have that effect with a full training camp. We're putting a lot of stock into the fact that they're practicing every day because they hardly practiced at all last year because of the schedule. It remains to be seen, but yeah, it can't possibly be any worse. Calvin DeHaan, I'm assuming he's going to play with Brent Seabrook. He'll be a good calming force who can who could kind of help out and then let him play to his strengths on the offensive end. Ole Mata can, sit, can play a shutdown pairing with Connor Murphy. Connor Murphy, who gets so much shit from fans sometimes, has yeah. actually been the most consistent defenseman they've had the last two years. Right. I don't know why he doesn't get the respect he seems to warrant. I mean, he's been as good a defender as they've had for two years now. It's not an awful back end. I mean, there's that's a top six. That's a perfectly viable NHL. I mean, Keith and Gustafson are going to score a crap ton of points. They're going to give up a lot of goals too. They're going to be an adventure, but they'll be fun to watch. And the other two pairings, should be, they should be adequate. Which is, you know, again with a, with a high end offense, a high end power play, and 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 the best goaltending duo in the league. If the defense is adequate and the penalty killing is adequate, why can't this be a ninety five point team? I agree. That's that's the hope, at least. I, well, yeah, that, that, that's the best case scenario. Yeah. Right. On um, uh, the goal that Adam Boca scored on Monday night against the Washington Capitals just made me think things because it's just like that's that's like that's what you want him to be, and he's doing it in preseason games. I, like I was reading your guys' preview at the start of the season or start of training camp that it's he's still a bit of a long shot, but has he done anything to make you convinced that that shot is not as long as we thought it was a week ago? Well, again, it's hard because where is he going to fit? Who right. are they going to – you got you got Keith, Gustafson, DeHaan, Seabrook, Mata, and Murphy. None of them are going anywhere. There's your top six. You're not going to bring in Adam Boquist to be your number seven defenseman. You know, you, you want him to play. So I think he goes to Rockford. And, he, look, his offensibility is out of this world. He is a, a, a supernatural talent offensively. But you know, I talked to a lot of people around the London Knights last year. And it got better. It did get better as the year went on. But there are questions of whether he is an NHL-caliber defender. Right. And since his job is to be a defenseman, you know, how many Eric Gustafsons do you need? I mean, you've got a guy like that already who is a very effective point producer and is a liability in his own end a lot of the time. Uh, you can't have too many of those guys on your defense. And, you know, when there's a... If, I think Boquist, he's definitely going to be a pro this year. Bowman's already said that. He's not going back to junior. So he gets some time in Rockford, gets to play a heavier game, gets to fine-tune his defense, gets to work with them in Rockford, the development team. And the first injury, the first opening, and there are always injuries, especially on defense. They're always going to use 9, 10, 11 defensemen over the course of the year. Maybe he gets the first shot, depending on which player gets hurt. I mean, if it's Oli Mata, 
maybe you're not going to bring up Adam Bokwitz. You're probably more comfortable with a Carl Dahlstrom or someone like that. But it's certainly conceivable that he's up here by midseason. He has NHL caliber ability. He has star ability. It's just wow. a matter of whether he can hold it down in his own end. I, the thought that we were discussing on our, I think, most recent podcast was that if, if Boquist proves in camp that he's good enough to play, then Eric Gustafson immediately becomes trade bait. But I don't know if you get the most value out of a guy trading him in late September than you would maybe trading no, him. No, no, no. I, I, I don't think that happens. It's, it's hard to make a big trade this early in the season because okay. by this point, everyone is like, you know what, I, I kind of like my team. I think that this is all right. Or if I have a hole here, a hole there, but I'm not going to give up anything this early in the season. So uh, other than like a, a Nick Letty type salary dump trade, I think the, the trade market tends to loosen in like November up like a month in where GM is like, oh, crap, this is a big hole I need to fill. And Eric Gustafson would be a good ad there. Uh, Gustafson will be – his trade status will be a storyline all year just because he's so cheap and he's so productive and he's doing a new contract next year that the Blackhawks probably can't afford so right. that's going to be a storyline all year because if the Blackhawks are doing well, how do you chop your – and how do you give away your power play quarterback? Even if it's at the deadline, how do you do that if you're in a playoff race? Do you think Adam Bokos can come in and do that exact same thing? Maybe that's the plan. Maybe they hope that Gustafson's great all year, the trade deadline, they get a big haul for him, and then they slot Oakwist in there to do the same thing. Maybe, but Gustafson's a proven commodity now. He is a good, high-end NHL productive talent. And Bokos, we don't know what he is yet. Uh, the last guy I wanted to ask you about is Jeremy Colleton. Now, you mentioned earlier that they're practicing every day, and there was so much talk last year about the, the shift in de- defensive philosophies from Quinville to Colleton, from zone to man-to-man, and that that was – I seem like the Blackhawks almost used that as a crutch for why they were having so many struggles. So does, does this season feel different now because they're getting a training camp, and now if, the, if that excuse isn't there anymore and we're talking in late October and they're giving up six goals a game, then what happens? Well, then they've got a problem. I mean, you're right. Yeah. They, they did use it as a crutch last year. It did feel like, not an excuse necessarily, but it was an explanation of, you know what, we're still working through this. We haven't had a chance, and Jeremy's still adding things. It'll be, it'll be better next year. We heard so much uh, late in the season and over the summer about how a training camp was going to change everything and how it would make it so much easier. And, you know, Brent Seabrook told me over the summer that, yeah, it was, it was tough attacking. You know, your muscle memory after 10 years under one coach and then changing everything you do, it's hard to do on the fly. But, well, they're, they're on the ice every day for an hour and a half plus. They're doing video work every day. There's no excuses now. By the time they get to Europe, they better have this thing nailed down. Because if we're having the same conversation as they're still adapting to Jeremy Collins' system, and it's mid-October, then this season's going to get out of hand in a hurry. Yes. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and anybody who follows you on Twitter knows your fondness for Pearl Jam. So I wanted yeah. to go back to the very beginning. How did that all start with you? Where did the, the Pearl Jam fandom begin? You know, I think that everyone falls in love with, like, becomes a music fan, probably like in their middle school years, like 11, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, I was 11 when Pearl Jam 10 came out. Uh, I was 12 when they really hit it big, when, like, Jeremy hit MTV, back when MTV played music videos. And I would sit there and watch it all afternoon, just waiting to see the Jeremy video because you couldn't watch it any other way because right. YouTube didn't exist yet. That's just, that was the first band I really fell in love with. And that whole, you know, I still, when I'm in the car, I'm listening to Sirius Lithium. I'm listening to Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and, you know, all those uh, 90s bands, Our Lady Peace that I love. And, you know, I like a lot of new music, too. A lot of the old rock now is pretty good, but, I think whatever you like when you're 11 years old, 
that becomes what you like forever. And I got lucky that it's a band that tours all the time, that still makes new music, and that is the greatest band in the last uh, 30 years. How many times have you seen them? Eight or nine, maybe ten. I, I don't know. Okay. I, I have friends that have seen them like a hundred times. I'm not one of those people. I didn't, I didn't even see them for the first time until I was in college. I remember my brother had tickets to see them when he was in college. I was in high school. He had tickets to see him on Randall's Island in New York, and he wanted me to go with him. My parents wouldn't let me go because it was like a weeknight, and it was in the middle of nowhere. It was during the Ticketmaster fight. So they're playing these random venues, and right. I was so mad about it. And that, that concert still comes up on Pearl Jam Radio on Sirius sometimes. I get angry every time I see it. <laughs> well, you talk, like, you talk about how rare it is to have a band that actually, you know, after 30 years is still touring and still making new music. Like, I think you can count on – you don't need too many hands to count how many bands from that era are still touring. Right. I, mean, I got lucky. Band. If I were a Nirvana fan, if, if Nirvana were my band or Alice in Chains were my band or Soundgarden, I mean, they're all dead. It's awful, but it's true. Pearl Jam is really the, the, the longest surviving band intact and still making music. And I'm too young to be a Springsteen fan, but if you're a Springsteen fan, you lucked out because he still plays forever and he's still everywhere and he's still making music. You know, a lot of times bands break up. I love my second favorite band of all time is probably The Strokes. You got three and a half good albums out of them, and then it just basically disappeared. <laughs> That's how it usually goes. I got lucky with Pearl Jam. It's funny that you mentioned Springsteen because it seems like the generation of sports writers just before you, like they're all like contractually obligated yep. to be Springsteen fans. So I was trying to figure that, out. That, that's the line of demarcation right there. Is my generation is Pearl Jam, the older generation is uh, is Springsteen. I don't know what like the twenty somethings now what they listen to. Yeah, like my thought was going to be like the Foo Fighters, who I'm a huge fan of, because Dave Grohl has ties back to the area that you were talking about. So I don't know if that's right. I mean, that, that's basically the same. That's basically the same generation of Pearl Jam. Yeah. A little bit, a few years later. I don't know. I I have to think about that. That'd be a good, be a good thought. That'd be a good. That'll be our post for next summer when we're waiting for something to talk about in mid August. Probably some horrible EDM shit. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Fall Out Boy because of the uh, the Mups on Fire song that was so oh, prevalent God. earlier. I still hear it in my dreams. Uh, understandable. Mark, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, I know you've been on the road trying it. to get to practice this morning, so we'll let you go. We know everyone can find your stuff at The Athletic. You're on Twitter at Mark Lazarus. Is there any anything else to plug? Uh, buy my book? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, buy buy the book. The book was great. Like I, there's there's some stories in that book that I still haven't seen. Like have still haven't seen the light of day anywhere else. So, and actually, there's one of the stories that was referenced at the Athletic today that we might have a follow up at our podcast, but we'll worry about that later. All right, I'll be listening. Gotcha. All right, thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate it, and uh, best of luck covering the team this fall. All right, Dave. Thanks. <laughs> Da 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 da